The rest of us will be in Revelation once again, uh, looking at chapters 8 and 9. All right, so today, today we are starting the second cycle of judgments within the book of Revelation. All right, so we've done the first cycle, which was the seals, and now we are moving to the trumpets. And now I just want to remind us, because we can get lost in the, in the weeds here. All right, what is actually going on here? This is John seeing visions in succession and him writing them down. Now, just because a vision happens after another vision doesn't mean it's chronological. It, it doesn't, you have to parse all that out. Okay? It's just that he saw this, and then he saw that. So first he sees the seals, and then he sees the trumpets. And sometimes, multiple visions can have kind of the same content in the same story. I think of Pharaoh when he's interacting with Joseph. He sees a, a vision of cows and a vision of wheat. And they're both the same vision, that there's going to be seven years of prosperity and then seven years of famine. It's just different ways of telling the story. And so as we come to the seven trumpets, we're retelling that same story that we've already told. We already went through uh, the time of Christ's resurrection all the way till the final coming in the seal judgments. And now we're going over and telling the story again with slightly different themes so that slightly different nuances might be drawn out. And this time, this time in the seven trumpets, we're seeing the judgment, the judgment of unbelievers in a kind of focused, narrowed sense. Before, with the, with the seals, it was kind of this blanket suffering and believers would endure it to the glory of God, and unbelievers would endure it to their own detriment. But this one is narrow and focused on unbelievers themselves. And we're going to see that there are three things that God is doing in these first six trumpets. First, he's going to destroy their idols. He is then going to cast upon them spiritual and emotional oppression and finally, he's going to deceive them unto death, or send, send the deceiver to them unto death. This is a, a difficult and serious passage. And it has a lot of gravity and is, is tragic in a lot of senses. Because the Lord, he, he is bringing this ongoing widespread judgment during this time period. That those who do not follow him may see that they are under his wrath and judgment. So with that, let's pray. Let's ask for help and uh, seek him. Father, we ask that you might speak through your word. We ask that Christ might get the glory that is due him. And Father, we ask Holy Spirit that you would fill us up and make your word speak. Would it not be dead words to us, but would be living would it be powerful? Would it be a two-edged sword that ultimately calls us back to Christ and to the kingdom it is to come? Father, would you help us to understand and receive these things to your glory? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right.
So why tell the story a second time? All right, we're going to tell it like five times, actually. <laughs> That's what Revelation is. It's this same story told again and again and again. And uh, we said that last time, like, okay, we have the, the persecuted saints. And they were sealed with the, the name of God and they were protected until that last day when judgment was poured out. When all of the vengeance that, that was called for and prayed for it waited until that final, final day of silence, and then God acted. Now, some of you uh, actually came up to me and were like, we really have to wait until the very last day? We have to wait until, until the, the very last moment, and only then will we see real justice. And it's as if this, this trumpet judgment, it's answering exactly that question. Well, what is going to happen before that? Is there going to be any ongoing temporal judgment for those who are persecuting and and killing the beloved ones of Christ? And this passage is a resolving answer. Yes, the Lord hears. The Lord knows. And he will not go without acting for the sake of his people. In fact, that's, that's why there's this illusion in, in the very first part of chapter 8 where it talks about the trumpets in the midst of the seals because it's all answering the same question. Lord, what are you going to do in this time as we suffer? What are you doing about it? And to answer that question, we start with the first four trumpets, which are a picture of kind of these exodus plagues that strike at the idols of the wicked and the unbeliever. Let's read this. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown down upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burnt up. And a third of the trees were burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. A second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died because of the water, because it had been made bitter. And the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might might be kept from shining, and likewise, a third of the night. So just as before, we saw the four horsemen who came for this ongoing judgment. Here are the four angels blowing their trumpets and bringing a judgment. And now you can see the theme here, right? There's this threefold creation, this this threefold uh, existence that God has put into the world. Sky, earth, and sea. And each of those is being kind of systematically destroyed and uncreated. 
it's as if God, as he prepares for judgment, he starts breaking down the creation that he, he built up. And all of the blessings of creation are descending back into chaos and darkness and death. Now, this is a difficult passage. Because what are we actually talking about? What's actually happening? Right, if you remember, these are visions. And so very little of this is going to be actually literal. These are pictures and symbols of larger things. And throughout the Old Testament, some of these images were, have already been used, and they weren't literal there either. So we have to be careful and, and think, all right, what does this mean? All right, the first one. Now, the earth is not literally burnt up with fire from heaven. It's likely a symbolic picture of something. What exactly? It seems that there's going to be famine and, and hunger. But that itself is, is kind of symbolic. It's, it's this picture of all the things that the people need and that they take for granted. And yes, I, we live in a world that will provide for us. And, and we don't need a God to do anything. We will live and enjoy our comforts. And what does God do? He destroys those things. That they might be reminded that no, you think that everything is good, that everything is fine, that we go on in our comforts and in our provisions. And no, he reminds them that no, I am the Lord. Everything comes from my hand. How different than last week we saw the shepherd leading his people and feeding them and giving them drink that they would never be thirsty again. And here are the wicked starting in this life hungry. Now that then takes us to the destruction of the sea. Sort of a famine, right? It's the destroying of a third of the fish. For a seafaring people, that would be devastating. Not, the, not Israelites, but other seafaring people. And now what does it also say? It says it, it destroys the ships. The ships are destroyed as well. All right, that's where, all right, there's so many, it's like layers upon layers of symbols here. All right, so to bear with me. All right. Who is the evil city in Revelation? It's the city of Babylon. That's like the quintessential, like the city of the world contrasted to the, the holy city, Jerusalem. And Babylon, Babylon is a seafaring nation. And they grow wealthy. Later in the book, we'll see like the, all of the, the blessings and luxuries that Babylon has sailed over the sea to gather for herself. And what is the Lord doing? He is striking them down. He is destroying the wealth that they so love. Now there's, all right, rabbit trail, right? I'm not going to talk about it much, but there's, do you remember a time in the Old Testament where there's seven trumpets destroying a city? What gonna, yeah, Jericho, good, good. Gold star for Bethany. Uh, <laughs> all right, like this is, this whole thing is like a gathering of like, we're walking around this city of Babylon and we are going to bring it down. And the seventh trumpet is going to destroy it. And this is just the, the shakings, the rumbling of the city of Jericho. All right, the second, or the third. 
the bitterness in the water. Now, there's this wormwood. Throughout the Old Testament, it's a picture of just like the, the bitterness of suffering. And that even the water, the water which is supposed to bring life and supposed to restore, is become poison for the wicked. That there is no source of life. Everything has become bitterness and suffering and death. And finally, we have darkness. Likely spiritual darkness. It reminds them they are under judgment. Blindness. Chaos. This loss of hope and joy and peace turned into hopelessness and sorrow and fear. This is going on right now. During this, temp- this period of Christ's resurrection to his coming, this is the state of those who are unbelievers. And we wonder, okay, what, what is the larger meaning here? What are we trying to get out of this? Why tell the story again? We kind of had judgment last week. Uh, All right, there's a certain way that he's telling the story this time. He's telling it using the the language of the Exodus. Did you recognize those things? Right, we had had blood. Water turned to blood. We had uh, other ones. Uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh... All right, they're all there. Yeah, uh, hail, hail and fire. We have the darkness descending. All right, these are pictures of, of the Exodus. Now, why use the picture of the Exodus to talk about this period? All right, that's where he's importing all of those themes from the Exodus and all the goals of the Exodus and saying that God is acting like that now. Towards a people who are enslaved, towards a people who are suffering, towards a people who are crying out. And we could accuse God of saying, like, what are you doing, God? Like, I don't, we don't see anything. What are you doing? All right, God is acting. Just like the Israelites, they saw God acting and judging their captors, judging the wicked, bringing plagues upon them. That is what is happening here. Now, why? First, to, as an answer to his people. He is answering his people in their suffering. He hears. And it is not just waiting until that final, final seal to be broken. No, right here and right now, he is acting. He is working. He's protecting his people. He's judging the destroyers. All right, second, he is trying to draw the nations into repentance. Into repentance. But just like Pharaoh was being called to like, let the people go, turn away, like soften your heart. These sufferings are meant for that purpose. They're meant to soften the world in their wickedness and in their evil and their rejection of God. But I think the most interesting one is that just like the Exodus, this is God demonstrating his power. His power over the idols of the world. That's actually what, what he was doing in Egypt too. There were like all, the, all of those plagues 
all had an Egyptian god associated with them. The frog god and the sun god and the, the harvest god. And, and he just systematically just destroys all of their gods and mocks them with their gods. Like, you're going to worship a frog? Here, have a million frogs in your house. And we'll see exactly what you think of these. Yeah, we just love frogs. All right. That's what he's doing. Exodus 9.16, but for this purpose I have raised you up, speaking of Pharaoh, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. That if they want to set themselves against God, he will show his power, his power over them. And that's where you have the idols of the world. Right, first, the Bible talks about the people whose idol is their stomach. Their God is their stomach. What is that saying? Their God is just pleasure and comfort and hedonism and joy and all the good things in this life. And the Lord makes them shrivel up before they even it even hits goes down their gullet. It's been, been destroyed. It never satisfies. It never fills them. Or those who are running after wealth. You know, the storehouses all burn up. The stock market crashes. The ships all sink. All of these plans that all the arrogant have made and talked about, all the ways they will exalt themselves come to naught. Or you have a people who has polluted themselves, filled themselves with bitterness and with destruction. He says, like, oh, you like love pollution and uncleanness and poison? The poison of sin. Here, here's poison in your water. Here's poison in all things. You will be polluted people. And finally, he says, you are a people who loves the darkness. You love the darkness, I'll give you darkness. I will give you blindness. I will make you unable to understand, unable to see, unable to walk. Now, what does this look like in the day-to-day? I think one aspect of it, this is talking, this is, it's so complex, but we start to see that evil does not go unpunished. We start to see that idolatry, it like, it naturally leads and descends into death. And so we see something like anger, which at first has so much power. And what does it do? It starts to destroy not just other people. It starts to destroy the, that person's very life. They destroy the people that they love. They destroy all the things that they love. The anger destroys them too. Or sexual sin, it's promising all of this joy and it leads to isolation and humiliation. We have addictions that at first promise life, 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 and then they just descend into death, 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 until you're, you're trapped in the grave. That a denial of God, which feels so powerful, makes us feeling powerless and meaningless and living lives without purpose. Or something as, as innocent as vanity you exalt yourself, and then beauty fades and you are crushed. Or pride. 
in an effort to lift yourself up, you become so fragile and insecure, so doomed to fall. That is the nature of this world. That is the nature of the the way that God has situated things. It is inescapable. All right, what does this mean for us? First, if you are in that party that is calling for vengeance and justice, trust that God is working. He's destroying the idols. He's destroying the pride of the world. Imagine if the Israelites had been denying, you know, why isn't God doing anything as the plagues are happening? Like, that's what he's saying. He's saying that the plagues are happening. If only you'd see them. Let us trust him that he's not going to let evil win. Or not hear our cries. Now, an application of this. All right. Say something like the, the stock market crashes. All right, there's lots of ways to interpret that. According to this passage, one way to interpret it is that God is sinking the ships. He is sinking the ships of Babylon. Why? As, as a judgment that, like, you can't trust in this stuff. And as believers, according to this passage, it might be possible that we say, oh, good job, God. Yeah, that's what you need to be doing. You are destroying the idols. All right, my fear is that we, don't, we cannot say that. And we do not say that because we are as invested as anyone else. That's kind of double. I didn't mean that to be a pun. But uh, <laughs> in this way, like, we, have to, we have to recognize, like, no, if, if our kingdom is heaven, then we don't have to feel the weight of these things and, and mourn with the world alongside them. There are idols are being taken. Like, no, those aren't our idols. And we have freedom from fear and from, from sorrow over those things. All right, that's one way we could think about it. There's probably other ways. Uh, but this passage is pushing us in, in that direction. Are we open at least to that? All right. Second. If God judges the unbelievers and the wicked, the same rules will apply to those in the church who are still running after idolatry. The same consequences are applied. All right, we are told that the judgment begins with the house of the Lord. And so if this is, if this is us, if this is our hearts, we should expect those very same things. He's destroying idolatry and pride that rejects God. And if that is in our hearts, it will be destroyed as well. Hopefully, to a repentance and to, to a turning. All right, third. If you are in Jesus, be thankful. Be thankful that he has drawn you out. That you were dead in your transgressions. That you could not save yourself. And that's where at no moment is this like, look at the world, how wicked they are. This is a, look at me, how wicked I am. How do I deserve the grace to be protected from such judgments, 
when I'm just as wicked. That is the heart here. May we cry for vengeance and we may also be like captivated and, and devastated that God would hear us when we deserve the exact same things except for the blood of Christ that has washed us clean. Now, if you are not in Christ, there is reason for fear of these judgments. They are as devastating as they sound. Your idols will be destroyed. They cannot endure till the end. And I ask that you would see it as a grace when they are crushed, because that is what it is. Now to the second set of judgments. So we had that, that first set of four, destroying of the idols. And now we have these uh, five and six, the second set of judgments. And to start this off, we have an eagle. Then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. All right. In, uh, eagles are heralds of judgment. And they are crying out and they're like, this is, it's getting worse. Because the first four, they were directed at the stuff. And these next two, they are directed at the people themselves. Now first we see the fifth trumpet. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like a smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or the green plant or any tree. But only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. And their faces were like human faces. Their hair like woman's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. What is happening here? Right. A star falls from heaven, a king, the angel of the bottomless pit. Right. This is none other. This is Satan himself, the angel of darkness, who is corrupted by his pride and thrown down. And he is thrown down to earth and he is given a key. He is given a key that he did not possess before. And what does he use it for? He opens the abyss. 
the prisons of hell itself. And demons are released upon the earth like locusts. And what are locusts? Locusts are these grasshoppers, which aren't that scary. And so there's like a billion of them. And they come like clouds and darken the sky and descend and consume everything in sight. All right, what is he saying? He's saying that the demons of the abyss, they come upon the world like locusts. Except instead of like locusts to destroy the crops, what do these locusts do? These locusts, they set themselves upon those who are not believers in Christ. They set themselves upon those who do not have that mark on the forehead, the Lord's name. We're not possessed by Christ. And what does it do? They inflict, inflict pain and misery upon the wicked. The pain of death without death itself. Right. Now we have this strange description. Uh, all right. This is not a helicopter. Can I just clarify that? All right. Some people are like, oh, a helicopter. That sounds most like this thing that I've heard of. Uh, it's not that. Don't do that. Uh, all right. What is this? Like, we, the goal is not to like think, well, what does this most remind me of? The goal is, what does this sound like most scripture of? And what is this? This is an amalgamation of all of the most awful pictures of judgment rolled into one and made into Frankenstein's monster. That's what this is. It's mostly Joel, which talks about locusts, so it's appropriate. And... What is this picture supposed to evoke in our minds? The strangeness and just the... It's supposed to be horrific. And terrible. And hideous. Right? We are overthinking it if we get too into the weeds here. This is just awful. And that these creatures are released... These demons are released to attack the unbelievers. Like This is a horrible judgment. Now, what is it? What, is, what are they doing? It's probably most akin to spiritual and psychological pain. That in their darkness and in their lostness, that the wicked are being cast into despair and hopelessness and that the the pain they feel they cannot escape in this life because they they have torn themselves away from the god of all comfort and they're running after death and the demons are are bringing all of this into their minds into their person and they are just living in death Now, why are, why are believers protected from this? They're protected because we do not despair. We have great hope. We have a joy that's everlasting. We have a peace of, of being one with God, united to him in Christ. We are not, we are not taken to, to hopelessness. 
finally, well, the wicked are given, what are they given? They're given a king, a king of this world. And he has two names. Both of them mean destroyer. That the king of darkness rules over the kingdoms of the world. And what kind of king is he? He is a king who sees his kingdom and unleashes hordes of demons to destroy them and oppress them and to give them like death levels of pain. Right, that is the king of the world. That is the king of darkness. Now, I remind you, how does he get his power? The only reason he is king is because he is allowed to be king. He is a, he is a devil on a chain, on a leash. And God has allowed him this small place of a kingdom to be a vessel of judgment against the wicked and the unrighteous for the sake of God's people. Now, Satan is a king, but he's a puppet king. He's a king who ultimately does the will of the Lord. And he's a king who does not stand. This is not a power struggle between two equal forces. This is one being used in all of his evil in spite of himself doing the work of the Lord. That is the sovereign God who serves over all of these things. This is the real king. Now I ask you, which king do you want? Do you want the king that will drag you down into the abyss with him, if only to, gra to grasp a little more misery in his company? Or do we want the king who suffers and dies for us? Not that he might drag us down to hell. No, he, he put himself in death so he might drag us up to heaven to holiness and righteousness and glory. That is our great king. That is King Jesus. That is the one who will be victorious. That is the one who will win. That is the one who will ultimately have the last say and rule in the last day. He will come again. Satan is not winning. He is but a tool used by God for ultimate purposes. Now I ask you, all right, uh, I'll give you an example of this. What does this look like in real life? Uh, uh, I was... I did a counseling internship, which is an interesting thing because everyone is a counselor there. So it's interesting because you like talk about any problem and it's like, we will help you. <laughs> and like everyone gathers around. Uh, and so uh, one of my like co-interns, she was talking about her life and she's like, I just, I feel like my life isn't going anywhere. I have no plans. And then I have my brother. And my brother, like he does everything right. He's been so successful. He's not a believer, but like he's doing so great. And this counselor, he comes and he's like, you realize your perspective here, right? Your brother has gotten the ultimate things wrong. And it doesn't matter what you do. 
Like, you will thrive in the end. You will be with Christ in the end. Like, you have life. You know the purpose of life. And, like, no amount of success is going to compare to that. But I feel like that's how we can be. We can look at the world and see it prospering. And well, what about me? There is far more life in Christ than there is in the world. And don't take for granted that you know the experience of the unbeliever. You don't. Or for some of you who do, if that is, if that is your experience, turn. Serve a new king. Serve the king of grace and love and mercy. And that takes us to our last and final trumpet for today. There is a seventh trumpet. We will talk about that. Uh, Steve will talk about that next week. Finally, the unbeliever is deceived unto death. And the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the gold altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who'd been prepared for that hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode with them. They were breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses and in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Now, what is this? These are likely four fallen angels. These are demons from the Euphrates, which is symbolically the, the place of Satan, his stronghold, and they come out bringing death. Death by fire and smoke and sulfur. Death from their mouths. Now, what is this? This is likely the the spiritual death of deception. The lies, the division, the temptation, the doubt, and the unbelief that is spewed from Satan's mouth and whispered into the hearts of unbelievers. And as these lies take root and deception takes hold, death overcomes them. Now, we're not given exactly what. What is the deception? And we're not given it because it can be a million things. Our hearts are deceptive, deceitful. And there's a million isms that could draw us away from God. It could be as simple as boredom and apathy. Not caring that much about spiritual things. And not giving at the time of day. Leading to death. It could be hedonism and materialism and just running after the world and, and forgetting real spiritual treasures. It could be legalism and moralism, this attempt to be righteous on our own. 
be racism or nationalism or exalting of ourselves versus another and, and thinking that somehow we are better and greater. Right? All of these things are just a step removed from the gospel. And they just have to be a step removed from the gospel. They don't have to be like really far. They don't have to be totally evil. They can just be far enough away that Jesus is lost. That You don't need Jesus. You don't need Christ. You don't need a sacrifice. You don't need salvation. And you have no way to pay for sin. And what does it bring? It brings death. That God, in his judgment, lets the wicked be deceived. Now, before I think we are crying out, the Lord, do something. And then we see what real justice is, and I think we are, in some sense, horrified by it. That is reality. That that is justice. And that that is, that is where humanity stands without salvation. And we would think that in all the midst of that, as idols are destroyed, as, as spiritual and emotional torment takes hold, as spiritual death destroys and consumes, what would we expect? We would expect that people would turn. They would seek Jesus, but what do they do? Verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons or idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see and hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. After all of this, they still do not repent. Then in response to all of this, instead of crying out and saying, save us, they cry out against God and say, how dare you? And we are reminded that once again, God has to soften the heart. God has to change the cold stone hearts of non-believers and transform them that he has to unblind eyes, make deaf ears hear. Now, I remind you, if you can hear these things, it is because the Spirit is working in you. It is because God has rescued you out of this. It is nothing in yourselves. It is a gift of God. From Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him 
and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The only reason we are not, anyone is not, among the wicked is because Christ has rescued and has given a gift and has done the work and raised us from the dead. This is not, this is not a passage for pride. This is a passage for great humility and for great sorrow. Now, what do we do with this? First, If you can repent, repent. Turn from evil and sin. And that's where we assume, like, yeah, of course, of course I can turn. Of course I can repent. I can, I can turn at any time. No. It is a gift from God. Do not harden your heart in the day of rebellion. And do not think, oh, I will turn later. I will turn another time. I will. If the Lord is working in you repentance, turn from your sins and turn to Christ. He is your one hope. Second, if you are in Christ, do not turn back. Do not look longingly back at the life that was. Don't run back into Jericho as it's falling to the ground. Don't look back at Sodom and Gomorrah as the fire falls. Keep your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Trust that evil is not winning. Trust that God is working. And finally, if you are not in Christ, put your faith in him. Do not follow the destroyer to your own destruction but Jesus, the giver and author of life. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by your judgments. We know that they would be our judgments save for the blood of Christ that was shed. Lord, we thank you that you gave him as a sacrifice. We thank you that he rules, and he rules in justice and grace and peace. Lord, would we be faithful to proclaim in this life the work of Christ, that those who can repent would, to the glory of your name we pray. In Christ's name.